Morning. Hey, if you got your Bible, uh, turn over to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. There was a boy who was visiting uh, his grandparents on the farm. And uh, his grandpa gave him a slingshot to, uh, to play with out in the woods. And so the young boy was practicing out in the woods, but he could not hit anything. He was, he was taking that slingshot, putting in a little stone and nothing. Didn't hit a, a darn thing. Couldn't hit nothing. And so getting a little discouraged, he, he headed back to the farmhouse for dinner where Grandma was making dinner. And as he walked back toward the house, he saw his grandmother's pet duck. Uh, the duck was quite a distance away, but the boy, just kind of out of impulse, figured he'd try one more time, took the stone in the slingshot, pulled it back, let it go, pop! Right in the middle of the head, the duck dropped dead. The boy could not believe it. In a panic, he, he, he grabbed the dead duck, grandma's dead duck, took it over to the, to the woodshed and kind of covered it up with some wood. Didn't want to own up to what he had just done. But as he turned around from the woodshed, he saw his sister Sally watching the whole thing. After lunch the next day, Grandma turned to Sally and said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. And Sally said, Oh, Grandma, Johnny told me he wants to help in the kitchen. And then she whispered to Johnny, Remember the duck? So Johnny did the dishes. The day after that, when Grandma asked Sally to help clean the bathroom, Sally just smiled and said, Oh, Grandma, Johnny said he wants to clean the toilets. Remember the duck? So Johnny cleaned the toilet. After several days of Johnny doing all of Sally's chores, he finally couldn't stand it any longer, and he came to Grandma and confessed that he had killed Grandma's pet duck. And as he did, Grandma knelt down beside Johnny and gave him a hug and said, Oh, sweetheart, I know you killed the duck. I, I was standing at the window, and I saw the whole thing. But because I love you, I forgave you. And I was just wondering how long you were going to let Sally make a slave of you. How often do we act like Johnny, trying to hide from sin when all along our Heavenly Father sees everything, both the good and the bad. And when He sees us in sin, His heart breaks, just like Grandma's does. And He wonders aloud, our Heavenly Father does, how long will you let the devil make a slave of you? King David knew quite a bit about sin. He committed some heinous acts against God and others. And still David was called the friend of God and a man after God's own heart. How could that be? It's because David knew what to do when he sinned. He knew he needed to confess it right away. And he knew that freedom from sin's bondage was possible again if only he could make it right before God. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 32. And I want us to stand together 
as we read King David's words about his sin. Would you please stand with me as we read Psalm 32 and we hear from David about his experience with deep sin. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. David writes, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you. You, and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Heavenly Father, bless our time in Your Word. Help us to be a people who are sensitive to confessing our sin when we transgress against You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. David writes again in in verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. He writes, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word blessed there, you can substitute happy if you wish. Happy, blessed, is the person whose transgression is forgiven or removed. Happy is the one whose sin is covered or atoned for. Happy is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity. That is, happy is the person who is not eternally judged on the basis of his sin, but on the basis of something else. When David penned these opening words in Psalm 32, he spoke expectantly of a coming type of forgiveness that would transcend the animal sacrifices for sin made under the law. This kind of forgiveness would be so sweeping so complete that David could rightly say at the end of verse 2 that blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. We know that such comprehensive reconciliation comes from Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It comes from the cross upon which Jesus took the sin of the world. It comes from Jesus' lips when He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And we receive that full, unadulterated forgiveness 
when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Peter said in Acts 10.43, To Jesus, all the prophets witness that through His name, whoever believes in Him will receive the remission of sins. But once saved and eternally forgiven, it is often the case that we as Christians will continue to experience moments of returning to the old flesh, to the old sinful way. Even Christians can find themselves in a rut of sin. And David shares with us a little bit about one of his ruts and how it consumed him. Look at David's rut of sin in verse 3. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groanings all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Selah. You may see that in your Bible translations. How many of you see the term Selah in your Bible translations? Raise your hand. Most of you do. I, I believe it's, if not listed in the actual uh, uh, text of Psalm 32, you're going to find the term Selah in the footnotes of your Bible at the end of certain verses in the Psalms. The term Selah is actually an addition, if you will, uh, by a later uh, scribe, probably not written by David himself, but that was added to the biblical text by those who were copying the Psalms. You might wonder, well, why would they include it if it was not David who perhaps penned the term Selah? That's a good question. Well, it was used some 71 times in the Psalms, this, this term was, and its translation is disputed. But the majority of scholars believe that the term Selah was used as a musical term with instructions for both the musician and the singer or the hearer of the psalm. And so, after the time of David, as they took the psalms and put them to music, the term Selah would be used to give instruction to the community on what the musicians and the people were to do at a certain point in time. What does the term mean? Well, there's a variety of... As I said, there's a little bit of a dispute as to what it means. Some suggest that the term Selah comes from the Hebrew word Salal, meaning to lift up or to exalt. If this were the case, uh, and also based on the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they took David's words and they translated it from Hebrew into Greek and they used the term uh, diasalma. Diasalma. It meant interlude. Interlude. And so we have this idea of lifting up or exalting and then in the Greek diasalma, interlude. A lifting up interlude. And so, scholars rightly uh, infer on your outline there, that one of the ways Selah can be translated is that Selah instructs the musicians, you can write this down, Selah instructs the musicians to begin playing an extended musical interlude. Let me say that again. Selah instructs the musicians to begin playing an extended musical interlude, to lift up 
a diasalma, an interlude. The early church father Hippolytus uh, indicated that this term indicated a change in rhythm or melody in the places marked in the Psalms. But that's not the only understanding of the term selah. In fact, there's another Hebrew word that's quite similar to it. It's the word salah. And that word means to be quiet or to be silent. Therefore, some scholars suppose that Selah was not simply a term for the musician, but it was also a term for the singer or for the hearer of the psalm, those participating in its reading. One scholar writes, Selah seems to have been used to mark a short pause in singing so that the singer would be silent while the instrumental music continued. So on your outline there, Selah also invites the people of God to pause and to reflect on the message of the psalm. I'll say that again. Selah also invites the people of God to pause and to reflect on the message of the psalm. You might wonder, why are we bothering with so much information on a word in Scripture? As of yet, I intentionally did not announce uh, the title of this message because I did not wish to do so until we could properly define what Selah means. But now that we've defined it, our title becomes more meaningful. The title of this message is Silent Sinners Selah. Silent Sinners Selah. For those of us who are silently continuing in sinfulness, Selah, take a pause. Stop and think. See what David says again in verse 3. He says, when I kept silent, when I kept my sin quiet, when I hid my sin, when I kept silent, David writes, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Pause. Think about that. Reflect on it, David says. Unconfessed sin will wreak havoc in your heart and mind. It will disrupt your body David says, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones grew old. I groaned all day long. In the moment, sin is desirable. In the moment, it's appealing. In the moment, it's pleasurable. But when the sinful thought or word or deed is over, all that remains is a heavy weight upon us. And that weight is the hand of God's Spirit convicting us. Reminding us that these things ought not be. Whatever the sin might be, whether it's pride, greed, jealousy, wrathfulness, lust, gluttony, laziness. When confession of your sin is lacking, when you sweep it aside, when you cover it up, when you hide it, when you keep it secret and silent, David indicates it's going to have a devastating effect on your life. My vitality, David writes, was turned into a drought of summer. 
A few days ago, uh, we, we went out and we got a, a kiddie pool from, uh, from Walmart. Parents out there, do you have any kiddie pools for your kids? Scott? All right. The kiddie pool, let me tell you, is a lifesaver in summer. So we, we, get, we buy this kiddie pool, I blow it up, I put it out in the backyard, and it's like it's heaven. Because the kids just, that's all they want to do, is jump in the little kiddie pool. It's, you know, it's a pathetic looking thing. But it's, to them, it's amazing. And uh, one, one particular day, a few days ago, it was so hot outside. I was just baking in the heat. And I'm sitting in the backyard, and Bennett and Mallory are in the kiddie pool, and they're jumping up and down and swinging around and tossing water everywhere. And they're like, Dad, come in! Come in! Dad, come on in! Come on in! And I'm like, no, 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 as I'm wiping the sweat off my brow. I'm like, no, no, you have fun. But then, as the sweat continued to pour down my brow, I decided, you know what, all right, I'm going to jump in too. And so I jumped into the kiddie pool. And let me tell you, that six foot by four foot pool was so refreshing. It was so nice. It was so, it was just, the, the water, it took away all the sweat, all the heat. I felt so refreshed when I got in that pool. And I kept, I wondered to myself, why didn't I ever get into a kiddie pool sooner? And I get into it every day now. No. So it is with sin in the Christian life. We sit back, wiping the sweat of sin off our brow, stubbornly holding on to our sin. Yet we see other Christians, and their life baffles us a bit. They're joyful. They're free. And why? Because they've laid hold of the refreshing and cleansing power of forgiveness, of confessing their sin, and letting God deal with it whenever it comes. 1 John 1, verse 7 and verse 9, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, He cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, the cleansing water of forgiveness is right there in front of us. All we must do is ask for it. All we must do is jump into God's pool of forgiveness that is wide and deep because of the limitless power of the blood of Jesus. When I finally jumped in to the kiddie pool, it felt so good, so refreshing. And so also when we decide to let go of our stubbornness, to let go of our sinfulness, and to confess it, to announce it to God, to acknowledge it humbly, genuinely, and to say, I'm sorry, Lord. When we confess it, we receive forgiveness. And our life, our sense of freedom, our vitality, those things return. Sin is bondage. It is enslaving. But when it is confessed, the believer's freedom in Christ returns in full. And so let us have a spiritual resolve to continually confess our sins to God. That's what David would urge us to do. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and my iniquity I have not hidden anymore. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave 
the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Think about that. I acknowledge my sin to you, God. I recognize what I have done is wrong. And my iniquities I have not hidden, Lord. God, I will not hide it any longer. Why should I hide it? Nothing is hidden from you anyway. And so I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what will happen? You will forgive my iniquity. Confession of sin is a spiritual discipline. We are all sinners. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Despite the fact that we receive eternal life and become a new person by faith in Jesus, our new spiritual being is still housed in a fleshly body with old and fleshly tendencies. Paul spoke about this often in Romans 7. A fantastic portion of Scripture to read if you are struggling with sin. Particularly the latter part of chapter 7. So while we are being sanctified in Christ, we are also still dealing with sin, Paul says in Romans 7. And most of us, most of us can't get through one day without sinning. And so, if sin is a daily occurrence, then confession of sin must also become a daily spiritual practice. Some Christians, they balk at that idea of confession as a daily spiritual practice. Some believers say that if you're having to confess your sins daily, then you're probably not very genuine in your quest for holiness. Some Christians might even say that if you have to confess your sins on a daily basis, over and over and over again, perhaps you're not a Christian at all. But nothing could be further from the truth. In the Gospel stories, Peter once tried to put a limit on how many times a person could confess their sins and yet still receive forgiveness. And notice how Jesus responded. It's listed on your outline. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Is that the limit? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. The jargon 70 times 7 would have been understood in the first century to mean that there is no limit to how many times you must forgive your brother of his sin. There is no limit, Jesus says, to how many times you're to forgive your brother of his sin. And so if God expects us to forgive without limit, how much more? Do you think he epitomizes that standard? Confess your sins to God. Even the sins you commit day after day after day after day. Don't be trite or presumptuous in your confession. Do so with bowed head, acknowledging the shame, and at the same time, the fact that Jesus put that very sin upon his shoulders on the cross. Don't be trite or presumptuous as you confess. God is looking for humility. But that's all He's looking for. He wants a humble heart. A heart of acknowledgement. A heart that says, God, I did it again. I'm so sorry. Please help me. Help me walk with You. But neither should we avoid confession out of fear or intimidation that we've somehow reached the limits of God's patience with us. 
We shouldn't be intimidated by the fact that, that if it happens day after day after day, that we've somehow run out on our ability to confess, that we've somehow reached the end of God's patience and that He's no longer listening to our cry of confession. He has no limit. He knows what you struggle with. In Psalm 86.5, David writes, For you, Lord, are good, and you're ready to forgive, and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. And so, in our psalm today, in Psalm 32, David continues on. He says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you, God, in a time when you may be found. And surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near Him. Those flood waters shall remain at bay for the man who confesses his sin. For you are my hiding place, verse 7. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Consider that. So go to God in confession and prayer. And the floodwaters of sin will remain far from you. He will hide you. He will protect you. He will preserve you. And give you deliverance and freedom. Selah. Verse 8, I will instruct you, God says. I will instruct you. And teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Those Christians who make it a daily spiritual practice to confess their sins, they are the ones whom God says will be instructed. They are the ones whom God says will be taught by Him. So our continual confession is also a sign of God's blessing. Because it shows our dependence upon Him. As we depend upon God for forgiveness, He bestows upon us the blessings of continued instruction, guiding us by His watchful eye, and not by brute force of a horse's bridle. The Lord desires that we become holy by walking in His Spirit, not by obeying the impressive harness of the law. David concludes in verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The wicked one, the stubborn one, who refuses to acknowledge his sin, who refuses to repent when needed, to that wicked and stubborn one, many sorrows will come his way. But mercy awaits the person who comes humbly in confession before our God. And in and a sinner's humble confession will soon reap a harvest of joy, of gladness, as we begin to live in freedom again, upright in heart, knowing that our God is good, abundant in mercy, and ready to forgive. So the question is, what will you do? Will you hide your sins like Johnny hid the dead duck from Grandma? Or will you make it a habit to humbly and genuinely 
confess your sins day by day, knowing that as you do, God will be that much more able to sanctify you by His Spirit. The Scriptures indicate that He offers instruction. He offers help. He offers a careful eye over the one who is continually confessing. But to the one who is stubborn and holding on, many sorrows will come. Silent sinners, Selah. Take pause. Consider what you're doing. Holding on to sin that God already knows? Why bother? Holding on to sin, covering sin, hiding sin that He already sees? You know better. We all know better. Silent sinners, Selah, consider. In your sin, take a moment of pause. Consider that which can make you clean again and free again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's a simple, simple lesson today. We are all sinners, saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Not one of us is without sin. Not one of us is perfect. We are all falling short of Your glory daily. God, You already see our sin. You already know it. You know what we did yesterday. You know what we did the day before. You know what we'll do tomorrow. And yet all You ask, Lord, is that we would acknowledge it when it happens. That we would humbly come before You and say again, whether it's the first time or whether it's the 70 times 7 time, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry again for my sin. I've transgressed You again. Please forgive me. Please help me. Give me instruction. Give me direction. Let me defeat this temptation. And God, Your Word says that if we would make confession a regular practice, that You will give instruction. That You will give help and aid in our time of need. And so Lord, as we make confession of sin a continual practice, we pray, Lord, that our sins would slowly dissipate. That our holiness would rise up. That our sanctification would deepen as we confess to You day by day the things that we've done wrong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.